Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Freedom Hut team, Buck. Great to have you. Appreciate your time as always. Quite a day. Quite a day in the news cycle today. Uh, it, it is really something when vast multimedia news empires have as their main the, the most important thing that they can tell you about in the entire world uh well we got seven billion people a lot of stuff going on there's wars there's uh you know the economies health care i mean just think of it, something anything and what do they want to talk about today oh yes yes my friends they do whether or not Trump was too mean to Mika and Joe, well, specifically Mika, but on Morning Joe, uh, we I I will have to talk to you a little bit about this because it's just everywhere, right? Like, I I wish I could uh, determine a substantive news cycle day in and day out. I'd say let's get into what really matters, and later on in the show, I, I have thoughts for you on. Uh, the uh, opioid epidemic and an update on that. I, I want to talk to you about D.C. is the first, st- uh, well, not really state, but you know what I mean, first part of the country, the first authority to do so in, in the United States to have gender-neutral identification and driver's licenses. Uh, also talk to you about some sports controversy between male versus female athletes. Uh, the Islamic State has lost in Mosul. I mean, there's still some fighting going on, but it's it's getting into the last days here. Talk a bit about that. Have a fantastic uh, author joining to discuss his book, Drone Warrior, about the modern era of drone warfare in which we find ourselves now. So uh, a, a multifaceted and uh, I was going to say groundbreaking show. That would be a little grandiose, I think. It's not, not going to be groundbreaking today, but it's, it's going to be like it's going to be two scoops of awesome, I think. I'm I'm thinking it might be. Uh, and and I, I want to know what you think, right? You, most of you already know what I'm, you know, or you already know what you think on this. So I, I want to know what you think. 844-900-BUCK about the uh, Trump tweet controversy from the day um, where you've got, oh, man. No, you know, we'll... we'll We'll hold that for now. Let, let me do some policy first. Let's talk about some. Let's talk about some real stuff for a minute. But if you have any thoughts on the Trump tweet and the defense of it from Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who just basically gets up there and is like, "Who who wants who wants to mess? Who wants to throw down?" You're like, "Whoa, she is not not uh, budging an inch when confronted with some, shall we say, at a minimum, unorthodox and a little salty." tweeting from her uh, from her boss, the President of the United States. But there's something important that's happening tonight, um, and that is at 8 p.m. Eastern, you will have the beginning of the travel ban going into effect. Uh, the, the This is an, an issue that has gotten so much 
more attention in a sense than I think it deserves because of the opposition to it, right? We th- This could have been an executive order that went through with relatively uh, minor changes. Look, after the, fr- the, the first time I get it, I think they made some uh, some mistakes in it. But the second executive order, I read it, looked perfectly fine to me within the president's authority. And whether it is in good judgment or not when it comes to national security is not up to judges. It is, in fact, up to the commander in chief. And whether they think that there's some cultural point to be made here about Trump's Islamophobia or what he said on the campaign trail, that's irrelevant. As much as they wish that it wasn't, it is. And the Supreme Court has indicated as much the court hasn't come down with an official decision on this but they removed the stay on the ban which is i I wish i could come up with a more clever or uh, quick way to say this i should also note i i tossed this one out there for the administration's usage maybe i i know some folks in the administration maybe maybe they haven't been listening to the show right now uh because travel ban is not what you want to be calling this thing i think uh, there's because that just automatically sounds bad. Travel people like travel. Travel's good, right? You think travel? You're you know going to sandy beach somewhere. You're gonna you know, umbrella you know umbrella drinks and laying out. You can put some uh, what is it? Zinc oxide is the stuff you put on your nose to prevent sunburn. You got a Hawaiian shirt on. The whole thing, right? Or 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 skiing maybe. You know whatever it may be. Or, or going to see your your great aunt Ethel who still puts. Uh, you know, a few quarters in your hand every time she sees you because you're her favorite, right? Well, whatever it may be, travel has a a generally positive connotation. And to say that the travel ban, ban is, hmm, you want to ban only something that's bad, right? So you'd have to think of this as the same way they do the word games, and they matter, right, with, you know, the wealth tax or the death tax. The, the, The description matters. Just ask a Democrat, right? Uh, how do you feel about uh, illegal aliens in this country? Oh, 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 oh. You, you, you mean uh, undocumented immigrants? They understand that language matters, words matter. So they're calling it a travel ban. And what, what I offer up to the administration, and uh, look, I'm not, an, I'm not an ad guy, I get it, but you know, I, I, have some, I have some skills in this area. Maybe call it a travel vetting upgrade, because then you've got travel and upgrade in there, which makes it feel like first class, right? Oh, I'm getting a travel upgrade? Travel vetting upgrade, T-V-U. That is a much better description of what's good. And I would offer to you also a more accurate description. Because at the core of the executive order on travel from, uh, what is it? Uh, Let me see. Oh, gosh. Can I do this off the top of my head? Sudan, Syria. You're like, yeah, Buck, you're reading it off a screen. I swear I'm not right now. Sudan, Syria, Libya. Uh, Iran, Sudan, Syria, Libya, Iran, and I'm missing. See, I'm not reading off screen. And I'm missing one. Sudan, Syria. oh, Somalia, I think, right? Yes. So, can can you make the procedures for travel from those countries uh, a little better? Can you force their governments or work with their governments or not in the case of Iran necessarily, but to put in place procedures that uh, make this current administration feel like the American people aren't at risk of terrorist infiltration of the country using the current uh, visa and and immigration system to abuse it, which anyone with a passing familiarity with 9-11 and what happened there would say, oh, wow, you mean 
You mean the country had like no idea what was going on with how they were here and they stayed in the whole, you know. Uh, so I think they should call it a travel vetting upgrade. It goes into effect tonight. It is a battleground of Democrat versus Republican because you've got people like Sally Yates, the former acting attorney general, who who's out there saying that this is just a this is a religious discrimination issue. And what what they never deal with on the left is let's just assume for a second that 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 were true. Um, what if the what if the American people, when it comes to non-citizens, uh, are willing to put in place mechanisms that do take into account ideology when it comes to people coming into the country as a, as to whether they're a risk or not. Is that so it, it, it's it, political ideology would be OK, but religious ideology is not OK. But what if the religious ideology and the political ideology are one in the same? So, you know, you can even begin to look at what someone like Sally Yates says, and she assumes, well, if it's, remember, we're talking about non, non-U.S. non citizens, who, by the way, in that about 14-page uh, order from Supreme Court, which um, it's, well, it's worth a read, they, they say quite clearly that uh, people, this notion that non-U.S. citizens from anywhere in the world have a right to challenge whether or not they're allowed to come here is, is, is just insane. And people like me and... and Many, many others, uh, including those who uh, you know, have law degrees and are fighting on this issue, uh, have been saying this from the beginning. I mean, this is just an indefense, intellectually, ethically, it's just indefensible. This whole notion that if you're anywhere in the world and you want to come to America and there's some policy that the U.S. government has in place that says, sorry, you can't come, you get to come to a U.S. court and challenge that? The court system would have to shut down. I mean, all we'd be doing is hearing challenges from people who want to come to the United States. So the Supreme Court was like, that's not that's not going to fly. Right? And I think a lot of people knew that too, but it really was never about what was legal. It was about opposing Trump. That's what you've learned about the executive order, really. This is just a function of hashtag the resistance. It's not a function of what the Constitution, or in this case, the uh, legislature, through very clear law, uh, gives as authority to the president of the United States. Right. So tonight it goes into effect. The travel vetting upgrade, a.k.a. the travel ban, uh, it, it becomes something that is happening. And they've made some distinctions between who gets to come and who doesn't, despite the travel ban. And I should note, a few Supreme Court justices have already said, well, you know, I, I disagree that we should even have these carve-out categories because now people are going to be challenged. Once you say that there's some carve-outs, you're going to get a lot of challenges to either expand the carve-outs or change the interpretation of them. So right now, if you have a uh, an established connection into the United States, whether it's a, a, an already existing job offer, a, an immediate family member, you are not, even if you come from, remember, we're only talking about six countries here, you are not covered by this executive order, according to the Supreme Court, for now. Um, and if you're a fiancé, a grandparent, you know, your your great-aunt Ethel, uh, if she happens to be in one of these countries, um, that that doesn't qualify. So that's a, 
I'm not going to say it's a completely arbitrary distinction, but there's some level of like, well, I'm not really sure how they're making that decision, but they did. Um, so there you go. Uh, they have put in place for these uh, six majority Muslim nations. Uh, there's a, a pause here while, uh, and, and I should note, there's a 72-hour window for the agencies involved uh, to prepare for these changes. There's been advanced guidance, and any refugees who have booked travel for uh, th- up through July 6th will still be allowed to enter the country. So they learned from the first time around, which means that those of us who were willing to be honest with our fellow conservatives, Republicans, fellow Americans, about how the initial travel ban was, uh, there's some mistakes with it. Clearly there were, because they've changed the procedures this time around in order to avoid those same mistakes. Um, But we will uh, have to see um, how this all continues on here. Uh, And there's more about immigration, too, that we'll be talking about, including uh, Kate's Law. And I have to get into the Trump tweets at some point. I will not spend a lot of time. I know you've probably already seen a bunch, but there's some there's some uh, general thoughts that I would share with you on the issue. Uh, 844-900-BUCK. What do you think about, well, first of all, do you like travel vetting upgrade as opposed to travel ban? Let me know if you agree with me. I think travel vetting upgrade is way better. Uh, and also, what are your thoughts on the tweet controversy from the day? Sarah Huckabee Sanders handling of it. I mean, she was just like cracking knuckles and cracking skulls, and she was not messing around today. Um, We'll hit that and more in a few. Stay with me. Okay, so let's let's just let's get this out of the way, shall we? Uh, Let's talk a little bit about what happened today because it was everywhere. It was everywhere. Uh, and and I, I can't completely ignore it. You had uh, the president um, saying uh, today, well, tweeting. Let's let's talk about the, the tweets. This, by the way, this is the main. This is the main story on CNN right now. The the primary news piece on the website, and it's okay. He write. Uh, he wrote the following. Um. While Morning Joe was on air, Trump posted a pair of tweets. He said the show is poorly rated and that the hosts speak badly of me. He then called them disparaging names and said, uh, wait, why am I here? Let me go right to Trump. Sorry. I'm trying to CNN is not even doing a good job writing about this. Darn it. Come on, CNN. Get it together. So here's what we know. Um, Trump tweeted out. Okay, here we go. I heard poorly rating Morning Joe speaks badly of me. Don't, uh, don't watch anymore. Then how come low IQ crazy Mika along with Psycho Joe came to Mar-a-Lago three nights in a row around New Year's Eve and insisted on joining me? She was bleeding badly from a facelift. I said no. Look, this is not good. Okay. I don't know. The president shouldn't be tweeting this. Uh, I'm not saying he can't fight back against people. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm, I give him a wide berth on this stuff and this is just my opinion. So who cares? Right. But uh, this is not good. I I can't, I cannot condone, uh, the president of the United States, uh, 
calling out uh, some in the media for uh, just the whole thing. It just it just wasn't. It was uh, this is unpresidential. He, yeah, I will say this: this is unpresidential based on the stand based on what I expect from President Trump specifically. Meaning that I, I I understand he's under siege from the media. I understand all of these other factors to take into account, but this one was a little. This is this is a little much, everybody. Uh, but Sarah Huckabee Sanders disagrees with me. I think he's put out a number of tweets on health care, on the immigration bills that will be in the House today. But that's not being talked about. That's not being asked about. You can't expect for that amount of attack and intensity to come on a president and him to never respond. And she uh, she continued on when she was asked specifically about how he was attacking a woman for her looks. H, uh, what we can call her, H, Sarah Huckabee, yeah, H, <laughs> SHS, there we go, had the following to say. Sarah, how do you feel about the president attacking another woman specifically for her looks? And what does that show as an example to how men should be treating other women? I, uh, look, everybody wants to make this a... Uh, an attack on a woman and equality. What about the constant attacks that he receives or the rest of us? I'm a woman and I've been attacked by this show multiple times, but I don't cry foul because of it. Yeah, but he's the president. He's not, he's not a talk show host, right? Can we, is, maybe we're allowed to, hmm? But I, just when I start to feel like I need to call out the president on this, then I see who is who's going over the line and being disrespectful to the president, including CNN's least insightful on-air analyst, which is really saying something, Anna Navarro. It's time that somebody looks at the camera and looks at him and calls him up and says, listen, you crazy lunatic 70-year-old man, baby, stop it. You are now the president of the United States, the commander-in-chief, and you need to stop acting like a mean girl. By the way, if if any if those kinds if that tone was ever used by an on-air political analyst or whatever they call Ms. Navarro over at CNN, I don't know what her title is, just somebody who goes on TV and, from what I understand, says dumb things. Um, but do you think that that ever would have been okay at any network when Barack Obama was in office? Now I know the response. I, I can anticipate the responses, but but Obama never did anything. Like the like what uh, like what Trump just did. Well, do you respect the office or not? Is is there some respect given to the office of the presidency? And people, well, I, I think right now would just say that they um, they refuse to respect it while Trump's in office. I think the media has already established that, and and now we have a, an entirely different standard. So I suppose, from the perspective of many Trump supporters, if that's how they're going to play it, then this is how he's going to play it. But it still makes me, uh, mm, nah. Well, what do you think? What do you think? I read to you exactly what he tweeted out. It, it was fake. It dominated the uh, news cycle today. And uh, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, we're also going to talk more, by the way, about immigration and policy and things that actually matter. But I'm just sort of curious. Are, are all of you out there listening across the country, are you like not, not really thinking this was okay? Or are you like, you know what, Buck, it was great. Let me know.
Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. It was fake. Don't we love that term, fake? What we've learned about fake over the last little while. Fake news. CNN, fake. Whoops, the camera just went off. Okay, you can come back. I won't say. I promise I won't say anything more about you. I see that red light go off. I say, whoa. President Trump continuing uh, to give give back what he gets to, to the media there. Um, he's... He is. They still can't. They still don't know what to do with them. Every line is lit. So I know you guys want to talk about this. So let's do it. And as we take calls, by the way, keep in mind that lines will be opening up. I'm going to run through a bunch of them now. 844-900-2825. Ron in Pennsylvania. What's up, Ron? Hey, Buck Shields High. Shields High. Hey, I just wanted to comment about, uh, you know, Trump's uh, tweets here. You know, he, he gets a prize for his call. Every day, and I, I'm really surprised that he's held back as much as he has. And, he, you know, I, I he just, gets what every day? I didn't catch that, Ron. He gets a barrage of insults every day, and I'm really surprised that you know he's uh, held back as much as he has. You think he's held back? You know, I, yeah, you know, like with this this Mika girl, you know, that now they're getting reports that he's being racist. You know, he's been sexist against her. Look, you know, Ron, uh, I mean, Ron, I don't understand the appeal of either Mika or Joe. I, I don't know why they're they're paid what they're paid. I don't know who thinks they're particularly good at what they do. But, you know, that's just my opinion, man. I mean, who knows? Uh, why should the president care? Well, you're right. You know, he he went a little bit over the top. But, okay, uh, all right. I'm, I'm glad. Look, okay, we can meet somewhere in the middle here. You went a little over the top. I think that's. I think we we could agree it's definitely a little over the top. Uh, and I, I I can also agree it's not a big deal. Although I do think that it it detracts from some other very serious issues today because the media would much rather cover this than anything going on with health care or immigration or anything else for that matter. And so I just wish there was. Uh, I just wish that we were focusing on on the stuff that we should care about, and this is not. I don't really care all that much. I should also note that it's it's hard to get particularly uh, energized one way or the other about this, given how the media excuses Bill Clinton's conduct, which I think was was so egregious for so long. Never mind. Uh, yeah, I know he was kind of slick in his public uh, public pronouncements, but anyway. Um, go ahead. You know, that's what that's what kills me. You know, the Democrats can do or say anything and everything that Republicans do, and including, you know, Trump, especially Trump, uh, he can't he can't look sideways without them jumping all over him. But he does a little but we gotta be fair, right? He 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 does more than just look sideways sometimes. I mean this is pretty you know, I, I would say this to you. A- anyone that I knew who is in the in the media on the right who went after a female uh, talk show host for a facelift and you know describe it the way that he did? That would be a problem. They, they, they wouldn't. I don't think they'd be able to uh, to roll to roll along like nothing happened with that. So if that's the standard for somebody who's in the media, I think we I think we can hold the president 
to a slightly higher standard. But I also would admit that, you know, there's a, a big part of me is like, well, who cares? You know, this doesn't affect my life. It's not really a not really a problem with the other. But it sets a bad it sets uh, a not a not a good precedent and, and not a pretty good tone. But Ron, I appreciate you calling in. Um, and in Virginia, what's up, Ann? Yeah, you're the best. That's all I'm saying. Wait, what? You're the best. Oh, thanks. That's nice of you. That's all I'm saying. I lost whatever I called about. And I'm assuming you called to talk about the Mika Trump feud. Okay. Oh, did you not? I don't know. You tell me. All right, I did. Yeah. What do you think? (laughs) <laughs> we're, we're we're waiting with great anticipation here, Anne. We need an opinion one way or the other. We need an opinion or a question. It's so curious. I mean, they love him. They don't love him. What is the fact? Yeah. Well, I, I think what we saw, um, and Anne, thank you for your kind words as always. Uh, I think what we saw is that this is this is personal. I think that Morning Joe was a favored outlet for the uh, for the Trump White House for, for I think for Trump himself. I know I, you know Trump has that's all that's all a part of this too and I think it's worth uh, taking a step back for a second. We've got a president here who has per- real personal interactions and relationships with prominent members of the media that stretches back for for years in some cases decades. So it's there's a different there's something else going on there too. I'm not saying that excuses anything. I'm just saying it's unique, right? It's unusual to have a president who could have kind of a personal beef with somebody in the media in this way, which he clearly does. I mean, the stuff he wrote was not that's not normal. Okay, that was that, and he's got like thirty some odd million Twitter followers. I mean. He is blasting it out there. David in Florida, WFLF. What's up, David? Hey, Buck, how you doing? I'm all right, man. Thanks for calling in. Love your show. Thank you. Alone Wabay. You love, your sh- love the show? Wabay. What did you say? Malone Wabay. Oh, Molon Wabay. Yeah, come and take it. 300. I get it. Go ahead. Uh, shield tie. Shield tie. Listen, uh, she, she's got to be an idiot to be marrying Joe, first of all. And I don't watch them, but the things I've heard him say when I just flip through the station is uh, I would be saying much worse than that about both of them. So I don't. If you were, but if you were the David, hold on, hold on a second, David. If you were the president of the United States, you would say much worse about about people in the media. You know, I, I've never had a pro- I've never had a problem with Trump saying CNN is fake news. With him just going at them. I mean, look, I think it's great. I talk about it here all the time. I like when he calls out the media for doing a bad job, for lying, for being deceitful. But you know, I, mean, I don't. I don't want the president. He didn't say this, but you know, I don't want the president walking around calling people, you know, uh, ugly or fat cows or you know anything like that. And and today was like kind of in that in that vein. I thought it was just a little. Look, I, I think Donald's better. I think Donald's better than that, you know. And I know people be like, "What?" But I do. I think he's better than that. Well, maybe he'll turn it down. But you know, when you see people holding up your head with bloody blow over the place, you know, you, your reaction might be a little bit different toward the media. I didn't really hear something. About, I heard something about blood. What was the? Oh, anyway, 
We're gonna move on. Yeah. I didn't really catch that. Um, what did he? I don't. He said something weird. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, so sometimes it's hard for me to hear uh, when with the callers. So whatever he said, there apologies. I didn't really hear. He said something about holding someone. I don't know. It was a little weird. All right, uh, we're gonna move on. Uh, let's do John in Alaska on a KENI. What's up, John? But so they don't have it on long enough here. We get only the first half, part of it. But um, that other gentleman was talking about um, that uh, Kathy Griffith holding up Trump's head. I oh, okay. I'm sorry. I did, I did not hear that. That's what he said. Okay, yeah. And, and, and when you look at all the things that, that they have done against Trump, I think he has every right in the world to show his, his, his ups, that he's upset and also to release those in some way. Some way the tweets are that. But I agree with him, and I, think, and I say that a boy. The reason why you were saying Obama wouldn't do it. He had, Obama did one of the most horrible things on earth. He gave America money, about $150 billion, because they released it from other countries too, that was supposed to be there to offset what the Ayatollah Khomeini had confiscated American companies. That was our money. And it doesn't matter if he does it with a smile. That was such a dirty act. And now we're going to have to deal with them with nuclear. You know, I, I think I think what Obama did with Iran was terrible as well. But I, I mean, look, we're that's a little bit of a diversion from whether the president should be wasting his time tweeting at morning talk show hosts, right? Is that well? If, what, what I'm saying, and, is, and, and by the way, I, I agree with you that he should fight back, and he's been fighting back, and I'm with him on fighting back. But aren't there some, you know, aren't there? Are, can't can't we say like you know, no uh, no elbows, no low blows? I mean, isn't that fair to say? Um, no, you you want <laughs> no no holds barred. Okay, you want no holds barred. I mean, that's he's, he's the president, and he's my president, and I respect everything he does. Wow. All right, man. Hey, John. There you go. I you're 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 telling it like you feel it, and that's uh, that's always welcome here. So thank you, sir. Uh, thanks for calling from Alaska. Wow. Um, he's just uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> we still have like every we got phone lines blowing up all over the place here. People feel strongly about this one. All right, uh, why don't we why don't we go into a break? Uh, catch breath here for a second. The Mika and Joe Trump feud. Uh, we can do a little more, and then I promise you we'll get into uh, latest on immigration, House passed some immigration law. There's some, there's some other stuff to talk about, but I, I'm fascinated to to hear to hear some of these opinions on this. Uh, I. I I feel like I'm I'm kind of gentle in my uh, criticism here of of where I would have where I think that maybe the tone was a bit wrong and how uh, Trump but you guys are all like nah man this is it round roundhouse kicks and and sucker punches what, whatever it has to be that's what the president should be doing okay that's you know to each his own eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four nine hundred buck. Here's what Mika Brzezinski was saying right before Trump tweeted out what he did. Nothing makes a man feel better than making a fake cover of a magazine about himself, lying every day and destroying the country. Okay. It's a good feel. Enough about me. But where are your hands in that photo? Well, he's covering his hands here because they're teensy. She insulted the president a little bit. That's... So that's a that that's a low that's a low blow. That's a cheap shot. Uh, okay, uh, I need to be fair here. That is a cheap shot.
So I want to play that for you because that's a necessary context here as well. Now, he's the president. They're talk show hosts, but hmm. Uh, Jack in North Carolina, WPTI. What's up, sir? Well, I called you to comment on just what you just said. You're talking about a woman, like she's got more rights than a man. Okay, the man, he just, well, all he did was defend himself from the so-called woman. Okay, take away the cotton figure woman and make a man out of her. She wants to be a man. She wants to play in a man's realm. Better do it. Is it a, a man-woman thing, or is it a president talk show host thing? Hey, the president's got just as many rights as I do. And that no, I I don't disagree with you. I, I, by the way, I think I'm not saying that the president isn't allowed to call out oh, or shouldn't or shouldn't say now. that that I'm what they said is wrong and they're jerks and their show stinks. I just think that he plays he plays into the uh, the hysteria on the other side a little bit by going after someone's a, a, appearance in that way. But uh, if you think that that hey, do I get a reply? Yeah, by all means, sir. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, you're playing into the stereo yourself. You're playing. You're all. You're playing all kind of stereos. Well, I don't know you, if I'm playing into a stereo. What do you mean, stereo stereotype? You do. Yes, you do. I hear you. I listen to you. You waffle. You don't. You you haven't got a good straight thought. You no, got you're right. I I have no I have no no ideas or principles actually. I just come and waffle. What, what, so, so, so gentle criticism of the president of the United States you think is indicative of, of waffling. That's interesting. That's, why that's, is that the case? So, so do you, I'm just wondering, has the president, no, 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 now, now I'm going to ask you a question. Has the president ever done anything wrong? Has the president ever done anything with which you disagree? Yes. Yes, he has. What has he done wrong? What has he done wrong? Yes, sir. Uh, I don't know. I've, I've, <laughs> okay. I've okay. It's, it's been fun, wrong. Jack. Thank you for calling in from North Carolina. Good talk. Um, let's get Keith in Alabama, WBCF on. What's up, Keith? Hey, Buck. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Oh, there you go. Hey, uh, right off. Love your show, man. <laughs> Thank you. I catch it every, chance, every time I get a chance. Um, about the whole Mika thing, my personal opinion is he's – it, it wasn't that bright. It, it, I'm not saying he's not an intelligent individual. I'm sure. He... Wait, we want to hear you, but I think he did. He just cut off. Did we lose him or am I crazy? Um, can you still hear me? Now we can hear you. What were you saying, sir? There you go. I said, I'm not saying he's not an intelligent individual. Trump, our president Trump, I'm sure he is, but that was just dumb. Um, if, if he didn't make remarks like that on Twitter, which I would really, I voted for the guy. I really, I did. But I would really hope he had more important things to do. Um, they wouldn't have anything to talk about. They would they would be forced to talk about his immigration policies. They would be forced to talk about the what did you call it earlier the travel. Uh, I, I like the the upgrade. travel vetting upgrade. Yes, exactly. Let's let's go with that. I'm going to start using that if you don't mind. But but um, can you? It's so much better than travel ban. It is. I mean that they can't really you know just have anything bad to say about an upgrade, right? Exactly. And it's vetting. Who doesn't believe in vetting? What are you, you going to bring somebody into your home and let them, you know, uh, change uh, change the fixtures on your ceiling without vetting? No, of course. You vet everybody. 
Exactly. But what would what would they have to talk about if he didn't do that? I mean, that, and that's where I'm coming from. If I was his uh, advisor, I would tell him, "Look, dude. I mean, you do what you want to do. You're the president, for God's sake. But I mean, what, you're giving them material. I mean, I don't want to give anybody else something that they can use against me." Yeah. Look, I, I think we lost. I think we lost a day here where we where we could have uh, had more of a national focus on on the health care bill, for example. Maybe it's maybe he's doing the Republicans in the Senate a solid by taking the heat off them for a day, because, I mean, it does look like what what a what a, a mess that that is right now, trying to figure out ways to buy each other off with this. It's not supposed to be like that. But uh, Keith, man, thank you for calling in from uh, from Alabama. I do appreciate it. Wow, we still have, we got we're not be able to get it. We've got like the lines just going and going and going here. Okay, uh, Greg in Oklahoma, what's up, sir? Hey, Mark, Shield Tie. Shield Tie. Um, I'm just I'm just really tired of the whataboutism. Um, apparently, we can't hold that two things are wrong at the same time anymore. Like either Trump's wrong or the media's reaction is wrong. Uh, I find that on the right, we've kind of swayed and lost our moorings, if you will, uh, when it comes to a. You know, being objective about a particular situation, whether it's Trump's response to the media or, or the media's response to Trump, Trump's tweet was idiotic and stupid and below the presidency. Yes. Was the media's reaction predictable um, and also overreactionary? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think we can hold these ideas at the same time. Now, Greg, I'm with you on this. I, I feel like, you know, I'm not a dad. Right. But if I were a dad and my kid told me, you know, my my 12 year old said that somebody was bullying him at school. And, you know, the kid pushed him, and, he, and so he pushed him back and maybe even hit him. I'd say, you know what, you got to defend yourself. But if he told me the kid pushed me, and then I pushed him, and then I punched him, and then I dragged him, and then I gave him a, a, a swirly uh, in the toilet, and, you know, and then I, you know, and like, I'd be like, you know, maybe we should tone it down a little bit. <laughs> and I feel like Trump, you know, went a, li- went a little beyond what he needed to in this case. That's That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying he can't hit back. It's just the way he hit back. I didn't like it. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And, and I'm Trump I, I, or I didn't vote for Trump. I'm definitely never never Trump camp. Um, but, yeah, he, he does go at him when he, when he needs to. This was just not one of those times. Yeah, no, I hear you, man. All right, Greg, uh, shield side, buddy. Thank you. Um, OK, we're going to talk policy. So we're going to clear the lines for a second here of the Trump Mika stuff. And uh, we're going to talk about the uh, immigration bills that the House passed and more. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Immigration. Trump talked about uh, two immigration bills that got voted on in the House today. Here's what he said. I want to provide a brief update on two crucial votes taking place this afternoon on the House floor. Very important. These bills are vital to public safety and national security. First, the House will be voting on Kate's Law legislation named for Kate Steinle, who was killed by an illegal immigrant with five prior deportations and lots of bad things on his record. The second is the No Sanctuary for Criminals Act, which blocks federal grants to cities that release dangerous criminal aliens back into the streets, including the vicious and disgusting and horrible MS-13 gang members, and we're getting them out We are getting them out. They're going fast. They voted on Kate's law and it passed in the House 257 to 157. One Republican voted no. 24 Democrats voted yes. 
what do these? Uh, what would this do if it became law? Jessica Vaughn joins us now. She's director of policy studies at the Center for Immigration Studies, uh, cis.org, to check out what they're doing over there. Jessica, thank you for calling in. Thanks for having me. Uh, all right, tell uh, Kate's law. Uh, it's in the House right now. It passed in the House. So, what what does uh, what do we need to know about this? Well, um, there were two companion bills. One was uh, known as Kate's Law, and that bill allowed for tougher penalties against criminal aliens who are serial immigration scofflaws. In other words, who get deported and then come back sometimes over and over and over again. And historically, um, the federal government has not always imposed very tough penalties on that. Therefore, people think that they can get away with coming back over and over again. And a pretty significant share of our deportations are people who come back, um, which says something about our border security as well. Is it wasn't it already illegal for I mean, I know it's illegal. Sorry, they're illegally crossing. But weren't there already enhanced penalties on the books if you came back a second time? Or am I imagining that? No, there, there definitely were. But this um, makes it possible to impose even greater penalties and and uh, sends a signal to prosecutors that they should, you know, be doing this more often. And hopefully this would be a deterrent um, for people, you know, who think that we're not serious about enforcing our immigration laws. It's an extra tool. And, um, you know, I, 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 I'm okay with this bill. I don't think it's as significant as the anti-sanctuary bill, however. Well, tell me about that one. That was the other bill that's, that's getting uh, some movement right now. Yes, that's, this bill was filed by Bob Goodlatte, uh, chair of the House Judiciary Committee, who's from Virginia, and it's the most decisive and toughest action yet against the sanctuaries, and it addresses it from all angles. It, it, it um, more completely defines what a sanctuary is to reflect what the sanctuaries are doing currently in, in trying to obstruct immigration enforcement. It says there's going to be consequences for this nonsense. They won't do the right thing on their own to protect everyone in the community. So uh, the federal government has to step in and impose these consequences. It's going to withhold a wider range of federal grants for law enforcement in sanctuaries. And it clarifies all of the legal issues surrounding when um, local sheriffs and jails can hold criminal aliens that ICE has said that it wants to take custody of. So it, it really gets at it, and it also will allow the victims of crimes committed by uh, criminal aliens who were released by sanctuaries to sue if, if there is a horrific crime that results after the sanctuary. So, for example, in a sanctuary jurisdiction like San Francisco, if they have, let's just say, an MS-13 gang member in custody and Immigrations and Customs Enforcement says, can you hold on to him? We want to deport that individual. And they let that person, San, San Francisco PD or the Sheriff's Department lets that person go. And then he kills someone. That person's family can sue now under federal law, the city of, assuming this passes, can sue the city of San Francisco. Yes, indeed, because um, the Steinle family did try to sue, and I thought they had a good case. But, um, you know, the... The, court, the, the, the federal court, which is in, of course, the Ninth Circuit, did not agree. They did not want to allow the Steinle family to um, be 
compensated or, you know, to hold San Francisco accountable for what happened there. Um, so now Congress is saying, we think that's wrong. Now, the, the, the Sanctuary Cities bill, you said it clarifies some of those legal issues. And I know that it, there's uh, informing, there's there's two separate issues, right, that are very important to dealing with illegal immigration from a law enforcement perspective. There's the duty that local law enforcement has to inform the authorities when they have somebody in their custody of their status, right? So if they have an illegal they are supposed to tell ICE, uh, and then there's the issue of will they hold the uh, somebody who is an illegal until ICE can take custody of them? Right. Those are the two. Those are the two areas that need or that would get clarification under this law. Well, ICE already has the ability to find out about most uh, criminal aliens who've been arrested because of the Secure Communities Program. They get a fingerprint notification. Now there are lots of times when someone who is not already in the DHS databases gets arrested. And if the locals know that this person is in the country illegally, they, you know, this allows them to tell ICE or, you know, prevents local politicians from saying, you can't tell ICE about these people. So that it, it so. The but aren't, aren't there some jurisdictions that don't share the information they're supposed to? I mean, I feel like there aren't there, there, there. Those are the two areas where sanctuary jurisdictions have been problematic for law enforcement, right? In notifying and then detaining. In in the past, um, this was a problem, but that's why the secure community. Oh, you're, so you're saying that's not really an issue anymore. So now they know. So really, the issue then just comes down to a function of will they hold? It's the detainer thing. That's that's the big problem. Right. Right, and all, and ICE is not asking local law enforcement agencies to enforce immigration laws. All they're asking for is the same level of cooperation that that a police or sheriff would give to any other state or federal law enforcement agency in the country. They don't want to be singled out um, for obstruction, and and that's really important. This is this is not. Um, a commandeering of local resources, as has been alleged. Um, this is not going to interrupt community policing programs. It's going simply going to make it possible for ICE to do its job. We're speaking to Jessica Vaughn, who's Director of Policy Studies at the Center for Immigration Studies. Uh, Jessica, the travel ban, uh, which I've been telling everybody should be called the travel vetting upgrade. They should stop calling it a travel ban. Uh, but the travel ban goes into effect tonight. Uh, what can we expect? Well, I, I don't think it's going to be as um, as much of an issue as happened when it was first the first version of it was implemented, uh, because people have had warning, you know, for uh, several days that this is coming, and people who already have been issued visas are going to be able to come here and and ask for admission. They still could be turned away if we find something derogatory in their background. But for the most part, they're going to be allowed to to try to come here. But there, there most likely are not going to be many, if any, new visas issued from these six countries where we cannot adequately screen people. And we now the federal government has a chance to in, uh, figure out how it can do a better job in, in vetting applicants from these places. So Jessica, what do you say to people who, including, of course, not just in the media, but different judges and you know, lawyers, and there's this, this has become a huge debate, what do you say to those who take the position on the travel ban that it has zero national security function, that's, that's just a dodge for discrimination against Muslims? It's nonsense. 
they don't know what DHS Secretary Kelly knows uh, about what the risks are nowadays. I myself don't necessarily want to know how bad the risk is right now. I, I do want the, the Secretary to have the ability to keep us safe and to make the decisions based on all the knowledge that he has and the other intelligence agencies and immigration agencies have about people who are trying to come here and about what the threats are. Um, this is a proper function for the federal government to do, and everybody's travel is going to be safer if um, our government has the opportunity to build the relationships and systems we need to, to screen people. We want to be able to let people visit here if we can have confidence that we have some reasonable knowledge about that they're who they say they are and that they're coming for good purposes. But we don't have that right now. We can do a better job than we need to. What does extreme vetting or what could extreme vetting mean? Well, I think it starts with being able to accurately verify someone's identity. I mean, when you have ISIS, we know that they've obtained boxes of blank Syrian passports and can issue them to their operatives, and, and we can't tell the difference. That's a problem. Um, it, it starts with being able to verify the claims that people make about where they work, uh, where they come from, what their purpose is in coming here, um, whether or not they ha- can be linked to risky groups through social media exchanges that, that have been public, um, and, and building a relationship with whether we can, in fact, even get the information we need from some of these other countries. And you know, we may find that we can't, uh, or we may find that taking this step of pausing travel gets these other countries off the dime and helps them understand that they're going to have to do better if they want permission to travel here. Jessica Vaughn of the Center for Immigration Studies. Uh, Jessica, great to have you. Thanks for making the time tonight. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tim, we're going to hit a quick break. We've got much more show for you. Stay right there. In North Carolina, WPTI, what's on your mind, Mary? Hey, bud. Yeah, hey, Mary. Hey. Hey, how are you? Man, let me tell you what. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for calling in. I'm so proud to talk to you. Let me tell you what. I'm a proud North Carolinian, Tar Heel born, Tar Heel bred. And when I heard the gentleman call a while ago, down south, if you can't say something good about somebody, you say bless their heart. So bless his heart. Um, It just, it killed me what he said to you because he called you wishy-washy or something. Waffler. I'm a waffler. Waffler. Okay. Which I don't think he, I don't think he meant that I excel at making breakfast pastries. (laughs) Waffle House. Well, you'd fit in well down here, but anyway, um, here's my, here's my take. And I just wanted to give a counter representation from North Carolina. I feel like you are so unique. Um, I'm a professional woman. I listen to talk radio on the way to work, on the way home, and at lunch. So I'm not one of these people that hangs around and tries to call in all day and get on the radio. I never call in. But you are unique in two ways. Number one, um, you have you've been in the CIA. I've heard your you know resume, and you're a real person. You have been out there in the trenches. You're not just somebody that is a professional talk show host or a politician. I mean, you, you've represented this country. You know the ins and outs of what really goes on that most of us don't know. 
that's extremely valuable. And number two, you don't, because of that, I think you don't come across just as having one agenda and one idea and nobody can change your mind or, you know, um, nobody can call in and, and make you think something different. I think you are, you're not theoretical, you're practical. And that's what we need. We need to hear from somebody like you who has a brain of their own and who knows the ins and outs of what happens in America and the government and who will say what they think. And I just love it. And I just wanted to tell you that. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to have the team here in the Freedom Hut uh, take your call and uh, cut it uh, cut it out into a separate audio and send it to my family. <laughs> so thank you, Mary. My mom might cry, I but thank you very much for your for your incredibly nice call, and uh, I appreciate it. Please keep listening, and and uh, everything you said is um, I am humbled, but I am appreciative. Thank you very much. It's very sweet of you. Shields high. Uh, so I think I should just I should just go home now. I mean, I should just call it a day. That's not going to get any better than that. That's a nice phone call to get. Um. And thank you all for listening, including those of you who uh, disagree with what the lady said. I appreciate you listening too. I, I like I like all of I like all of the listening to the show that occurs. Uh, so where was I? Oh yeah, I did want to get into a little bit of DHS Secretary Kelly because we we're just talking about immigration, and he gave some updates on the uh, number of. Actually, no. You know what? I will. I will. I want to talk about something else for a second. I'm changing my mind here on the fly. Yeah, I, I do think it would be better, uh, or um, I, I would like to see more people who have uh, a following in the media who their whole life and whole job has not just been trying to be in the media. Um, I, I, I appreciate that th- that is changing now, I think, because of all the different platforms that, that individuals have. And for a long time, lawyers have somehow been able to, like, they've been able to transition into media pretty easily. You know, they start doing legal analysis and they do legal political analysis and then all of a sudden they have their own show. So being a lawyer has been a, an entree into media if you, you know, play the game right and you're uh, telegenic and all that. Um, but people with experience, I, I still sit around and am surprised that there aren't, uh, you know, CNN's a great example of this. I would like to see more people with experience that uh, informs their judgment given shows instead of just journalists so yeah they have experts they'll bring on they'll they'll bring on general so-and-so or they'll bring on i'd also like to see people that are at the i'd like to see some you know non-commissioned officers represented in the ranks of the tv commentariat i'm sure there are some but you know um uh, and i can think of one or two off the top of my head but uh, it's, it's given how much national security is a part of the news cycle on a, on a regular basis uh, I'd like to see more of those who were uh, on the ground and kicking in the doors telling us whether we really should be putting troops on the ground in Syria or more troops on the ground or more troops on the ground in Afghanistan. I've had people reach out to me recently uh, who and, and I also have, of course, my own folks that I know from my, my personal life who have who have served in Afghanistan. And I, I have I have yet to speak to anyone. Uh, or, or hear anyone, for that matter, um, who is not at that stars on the shoulder or, uh, you know, politician level, who thinks that what we're doing in Afghanistan is the, this new 
strategy or uh, putting a few thousand more troops. It, I'm not even sure that there is a new strategy yet. They're coming up with one, but that it's going to work. I don't, I don't think it is. Uh, and we need more people out there who have a following who actually know what they're who actually know what they're talking about in a way that you can't fake. Um, one of the reasons I've uh, I was able to become or became such such close friends with a fellow named named Brandon Webb, for example, who was a former Navy SEAL sniper, and, and he runs a website called Special Operations uh, Report, softrep.com. Uh, actually, just hanging out with Brandon earlier earlier today. We talk all the time about all kinds of stuff. He's a, he's a, he's a dear friend. Uh, was that we would we cross each other's paths in media, and I'm like, well, you know what you're talking about, and he's like, well, you know what you're talking about. You know, that's that's kind of refreshing, and that was our that was kind of our uh, our icebreaker moment of you know, hey, we should like you know drink beer and talk about America, and that's what I know. Although, of course, I don't drink beer because I can't because I'm a celiac, which is a story for another time. But uh, I drink tequila, so there's that. And uh, anyway. Um, I I would like to see this change a bit, and unfortunately, I think social media has a magnifying effect for. Uh, it, it is a magnifier now in the media business and the news business for the beautiful, the insipid, and the endlessly self-promotional. And I think that a lot of the much more worthwhile voices, uh, whether on radio, TV, or or written. Um, that are out there on the right are drowned out by the the current. So, you know, on the one hand, I'm seeing different kinds of backgrounds getting into media, which is great. But I also see as new with the new entrance, so to speak, into media over the last, you know, five or 10 years, a lot of just the compulsive selfie takers, you know, a lot of just look at my face, look at my face. Now I'll tell you about politics. And I just Male and female, by the way. I mean, I'm not, you know, I, I, do, I do not discriminate about that. It's the, it's the vainest people I've actually met in this business are dudes. Yeah. Think about that for a second. Um, I think that uh, you know, women are under such tremendous pressure that there's always some, even for the vainest, there's some humility. But with some of the dudes, they think that they are just the greatest. All right. We're going to talk about Mosul in a second here. We'll be right back. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Let's get into some uh, national security analysis, my friends. Let's get into a Buck Brief. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. The caliphate in Iraq is over. That is, according to the Iraqi government, as they have uh, retaken uh, the uh, Grand Mosque in Mosul from the Islamic State. It should be noted the mosque is now rubble because it was uh, the great mosque of al-Nuri. It was destroyed by ISIS in one more just terrible, uh, evil act uh, on their way out of the city. Uh, So looking now at the uh, realities of what's going on there, um, this is going to continue to be a street-to-street, house-to-house battle. Uh, I know there are reporters, some embeds there who are doing very good work to 
bring us all close to the conflict in terms of uh, getting a sense of what's gone on. Uh, you have thousands of civilian casualties, unfortunately. You have hundreds of thousands of people who have been um, driven from the city, uh, refugees that uh, many of them have gone to uh, the north, to Kurdistan, uh, or east of Kurdistan, depending where they are. And uh, the Islamic State is days away from its biggest battlefield defeat and, and the completion of that. Now, it's almost certain uh, that ISIS will continue to engage in, in terrorist attacks based on what we've seen in the past from when ISIS was AQI, when, which gets confusing because AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, is a breakaway from Al-Qaeda, was a breakaway from Al-Qaeda, and then Al-Qaeda in Iraq became the Islamic State. The remnants of it became the Islamic State, uh, ISIS, later on. Um, so this is a very important stage of the conflict in Iraq. We still also have ongoing operations on the ground in Syria using Kurdish YPG militia to try and take back or take Raqqa uh, from the Islamic State. But focusing on the Iraqi side of the equation now, uh, this has been a largely successful operation. Um, they had over 100,000 uh, different troops who are uh, who were all a part of this, and there were many different uh, units, and they so far haven't had major uh, outbreaks of uh, sectarianism. So we are looking at now a future in which the Islamic State is really on the defensive, on the run, and will no longer be holding any real territory, at least in Iraq. What does that mean for the Iraqi state? Um, Iraq is scarred uh, for generations likely to come because of what's gone on there, even before the U.S. invasion, of course, just with Saddam Hussein and the way that he uh, abused and degraded that country and uh, pitted the various sectarian groups against each other. If you remember, Iraq is broken down into three primary ethnic groups, although there are others as well. We've all learned, for example, about a small minority group called the Yazidis uh, because of their enslavement by the Islamic State. And it was, in fact, if you recall, Yazidis uh, stranded on Mount Sinjar in uh, Nineveh province in northwestern Iraq, and the imminent prospect of their widespread slaughter that was one of the, one of the moments that the coalition, that the United States decided, look, we can't allow this. We have to use air power, and we have to help them. Um, and so... We did. Um, but that was the beginning of the air campaign. Uh, so I uh, I see now that uh, we are making some real progress. And this is to be celebrated in the sense that ISIS was a cancer. It still is, unfortunately, on the world. But in Iraq in particular, it was spreading and it got to the outskirts of the distant outskirts, but the sort of furthest suburbs of Baghdad. Uh, and it was also on the outskirts of Erbil, which is the primary Kurdish city in northern Iraq, um, which obviously would have sent a shockwave through the region because the Kurds, who had been able to stand up to decades of Saddam's oppression, his Anfal campaign, and, of, and even Saddam's usage of ga poison gas against the Kurds in Halabja, 
the, that if the Kurds had had one of their main cities, uh, really their their main city in Iraq, overrun by ISIS, it would have been catastrophic. So I just like to take a step back and remind everybody of what the stakes were here and how far the Iraqi government, with considerable U.S. help, and remember, the Iraqi government is a U.S. ally. We have had uh, members of the United States military training, advising, assisting, and I'm sure other stuff that you know we don't hear about uh, in Iraq. Um, and they've been doing a phenomenal job with very minimal discussion uh, from back home. I think they know, of course, that we all support their efforts, and the families of those who are serving in Iraq are aware of every day they're gone, um, but they are taking this mission to completion and eradicating the Islamic State from uh, from Iraq and getting to a place where now we have to look at what is the future of this country, uh, what does it look like, and can it gather some uh, momentum? Can, is there a greater political cohesion that we can expect from these different factions. I mentioned the three main the three main factions that there are Kurdish uh, Kurdish Muslims, Sunni Arab Muslims and Shia Arab uh, Muslims. So and the Shia are predominant in the south and kind of come up to Baghdad, although it's mixed all around. I mean there's different pockets all over the country. And then the, the Sunni majority areas are north of ba- north of uh, Baghdad and and in Sal, uh, Saladin province and Nineveh province. Uh, Nin, uh, Nineveh province is the state, so to speak, of uh, of where Mo, where you can find Mosul. Mosul is the largest Sunni Arab city. So they're going to have to figure out what the uh, direction of the country will be now that they've met this major security challenge, really an existential security threat to the country, uh, head on and had some success. But it's going to take a lot of uh, rebuilding. Uh, they'll have to be good faith political action between the different factions. There's still a lot of sectarianism. Uh, there are Shia militias looming. There are any number of ways that this thing uh, could go bad. But I, I did want to note that here we are. Oper- Operation uh, Inherent Resolve um, is at the, uh, at the stage where it is at least close, uh, close to completion. So uh, we're days away from seeing the biggest single defeat, um, the biggest single defeat of the Islamic State. And I think uh, that it's going to happen, it's going to happen in Syria as well. The Syrian question is is much more, uh, much more complicated in some ways even than the Iraqi one. Um, so we will have to see how, how this works. Um, we're going to be joined in just a few moments here, by the way, by somebody who can give a particular uh, particular insight into uh, modern warfare, particularly drone warfare. So we've got an author who will be joining to talk about that. We'll continue on with our discussion of national security uh, with him. And if you want to call and talk about this or anything else, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Uh, we will be back in just a few. Stay with me. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are joined by author Brett Velikovich. Uh, he is from the military community. He has written a book, Drone Warrior, 
Uh, an elite soldier's inside account of the hunt for America's most dangerous enemies. Uh, Brett, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Book title is very interesting, sir. I have it in my hand right now. It looks like a great read. What can you tell me about Drone Warrior? Well, Drone Warrior is about the, the U.S. Army soldiers that go after and, and hunt down some of America's most you know dangerous enemies. And what it is is it's a different side of the story. I think when you look at it, you might think of me as you know, that I was some drone operator, or uh, which wasn't the case. My job was to do the intelligence analysis. My job was to pull the pieces together and, and get information from a variety of different organizations. And then the, the, the missing piece of that puzzle was then to, to find uh, these guys um, that we were going after, and drones allowed us to do that. And so what I think is going to be interesting for a lot of people is, is for them to understand um, how drones are, are more than just a killing tool, but they're really meant to preserve life. And so most of the time we're actually doing capture missions instead of, um, you know, lighting people up with a hellfire, as, as some might believe. Yeah, the original, the original usage of, of things up in the sky, right, the, the, the first planes are really for recon, so it's kind of a return to that. That's exactly what it is. And, and, of course, there's a strike capability on there, and, and it's used in certain situations. But really what, what drones are meant to do, especially, you know, the predators and the reapers that are, that are used now so significantly across the military, they're, they're meant as information gatherers. They are there to provide troops this ability to see things that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to see. And when you think about how wars have been fought over centuries, never before in the, in the history of, of wars have we had this ability to know so much about our enemy and know so much about things that, that are over the horizon. And really, in the end, um, they're, they're, they're giving soldiers this capability uh, to allow them to know what they're going into beforehand. What can you tell me about the original leader of ISIS, Abu Omar al-Baghdadi? So he was one of the guys that um, helped rebrand al-Qaeda in Iraq. So a lot of folks remember Zarqawi, um, AMZ days, and and how he really turned AQI into what it was. Well, after he um, was killed, uh, al-Qaeda wanted to rebrand uh, their organization, and so they created the Islamic State of Iraq. And Abu Umar al-Baghdadi was the original leader of that that was brought into to kind of put this, um, you know, Iraqi face on things. And, um, and so he was um, one of the individuals that was eventually, that was eventually um, killed in an operation um, that the drones played a big role in helping uh, kind of uh, follow people to find his location. And also uh, tell me about the time that the current leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, uh, could have been taken off the battlefield, but somehow wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I I think um, you know we were going after you know the the, the Baghdadi pretty pretty quickly after uh, the first one had uh, met his demise, and we were really doing that because we saw how uh, important uh, he was to the overall network, and so um, there were a couple opportunities to get him that because of the fact that this was all occurring um, you know very close to when U.S. troops were pulling out that. A mission that would have normally taken a, um, a short amount of time uh, took weeks for approval, and the guys that were out there um, that were actually um, you know, uh, operating the drones and watching and, and hunting for him, when they believed that they had found Baghdadi in a house, um, they didn't have the ability to do much about it because the, you know, the great guys on the ground that would go in normally that same night, they, were, they weren't there any longer, and there was a different – the rules of warfare were, were changing, and – 
what um, again should have happened that same night it apparently took a couple weeks for approval uh, and by that time he's gone and um, the guys there confirmed that he had in fact been there uh, two weeks before we're speaking to brett velikovich he is the author of the new book drone warrior and elite soldiers inside account of the hunt for america's most dangerous enemies uh Nigeria, uh, there was a mass kidnapping of young girls, and you helped find where the location of those kidnapped girls uh, was, right? Right. At the time, I was out of the military, um, so I wasn't, um, you know, controlling um, a lot of that stuff. But I was, I was helping out uh, an organization that was um, working uh, to assist in um, locating these girls for, for um, really to help the Ni- Nigerians. Um, when all that news came up, you know, folks are looking for ways that. Uh, the U.S. could get involved because obviously it's you know it's not their country and and they you know they wanted they wanted to help out in any way they can and one of the ways to do that was to provide uh, this uh, drone aerial support and, and do surveillance and um, you know the the group I was working with you know we had believed we found these a group of these girls very quickly um, right after they had been kidnapped and when that information was eventually provided to the Nigerians, they, they just didn't, any, didn't do anything about it. And I think probably it had a lot to do with that. They, they couldn't get into that territory, um, which was deeply rooted and um, surrounded by uh, Boko Haram members. And they thought that it might, uh, you know, injure the girls. But, you know, it's tough. To, it goes to the larger point of this is that drone technology is fantastic and it's, and it's incredible and it allows us to see things and, and be a force multiplier that we wouldn't otherwise have. But you really need, you know, brave men and women either on the ground um, that are that are running into the, you know, into the house or running, you know, past the hail of bullets to to kind of uh, make use of that information. And and so it's it's so important that, you know, in the future um, that we give, uh, you know, the men and women of, of our, our nation the this ability to to actually do something about the information collected from a drone. And should we start to prepare for a future in which other countries will have advanced drones and drones that have a lethal capacity? We should absolutely prepare. I mean, look, right now the U.S. government still hands down um, has the, the, the top um, drone technology and equipment in their arsenal. They spend uh, billions of dollars a year on making it safer, making it more precise, trying to reduce any potential collateral damage that could result of its use. And I don't know if other countries necessarily will have those same standards, but yet they still are building these drone programs and trying to get up to speed with how, um, you know, how the U.S. government's doing business. But what's even more concerning to me, uh, and I've been talking about it a lot recently, is, is how capable new consumer drones are these days. And technology that I wish I had when I was in the military is now available to, you know, any kid that's willing to, you know, uh, shelf out the money at a local Walmart or on Amazon. And, uh, you know, they're so capable right now that we are seeing organizations um, like the Islamic State of Iraq and other groups that are trying to modify them in ways to weaponize them. And that's really um, the future of war from a counterterrorism perspective is, uh, these groups using them uh, to harm innocent people and to hurt American soldiers, and we've got to get a grip um, on how to counter that. And how long does it take to become a skilled drone operator in terms of the training? And and what what are some of the what's some of the skill set that people might not be aware of? Well, probably for for the operational standpoint, the actual drone operators, it'd be best to ask a pilot um, because those are the guys physically piloting these things. But from my perspective. Um, you know, the training really involved was dealing with um, the understanding the capabilities and knowing 
uh, knowing um, how to use it in a way that could allow us to hunt our targets a lot better. And so we, tr- we you know, train for years on being, being precise, being right, making sure that um, we are, in fact, you know, we, we've got a multi-million dollar machine, um, you know, burning holes in the sky. We need to make sure that we're actually putting it to use. And so we're, we're trained to um, uh, uh, tell the pilots and tell the sensor operators how to, um, uh, what to watch, what to look at, so that it can allow us to kind of refine this this picture that we're trying to create around our targets. Brett Velikovich, author of Drone Warrior, an elite soldier's inside account of the hunt for America's most dangerous enemies. Brett, uh, thank you for joining the show, and thank you for your service, sir. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Team, we are going to hit a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Stay with me. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. I guess we shouldn't be surprised that D.C. is the first state to do it, but uh, it's happened. The District of Columbia is now offering gender-neutral identification on driver's licenses and ID cards. D.C. is the first jurisdiction in the country uh, to do so. So there we have it. The the embrace of non-science by the federal federal government protectorate that is Washington, D.C. No surprise when you know the politics of D.C. It's as leftist a place as exists, which says a lot about government, right? The seat of government is also a place that believes that government solves all of your problems and that government should always be bigger and needs more money and is uh, overall the just the, the answer to the problem. W- what is the problem? It doesn't even matter. Government has to be the answer to it. So uh, th- this is, by the way, it's not the only place that will, uh, the only state or in this case, you know, district uh, that will uh, be offering these identification cards uh, I believe Oregon is next. So here we, yeah, Oregon is next. Um, why is the question that I think we start with? What purpose does this really serve? Um, and I, I know that people will say, but Buck, if it makes someone, you know, you say you like to be a nice guy. If it makes someone feel better or more comfortable to have gender neutral on their uh, identification card, how, how does that how does that affect your life? How does that affect your identification card? And of course, the answer to that on any number of things is well, it doesn't. But that's not the point. Uh, when someone is you know trafficking large amounts of drugs across the U.S. Mexico border, it doesn't affect my life, right? I mean, I I don't so I, I could take this attitude to any number of things, right? I mean. There's most of the stuff you read about doesn't affect your life. It doesn't really matter. Right. I mean, you know, you you, re, you could read about a, a murder in some far off state or even a murder, you know, elsewhere in the city. If it's a dispute between two people, it doesn't affect your life right now. I'm not saying I'm not equating this with a crime, but I'm just saying the well, how does it affect you argument is a non argument right? because it doesn't deal with the merits of the issue at hand. Drugs crossing the border affects all of us in the sense that it's a violation of U.S. federal law. Murder is immoral, and the state has an obligation to prevent it. Identification. This is not a criminal issue. I understand that. But identification is necessary. In fact, 
if you want to read a very scholarly but fascinating book, uh, I would recommend James uh, Scott, who's, I believe, a professor at Yale, his book, Seeing Like a State. Uh, it, it starts out with how the, the really the, the, or, the first uh, goal of a state has to be to identify and, uh, and understand and be able to quantify the people in its domain. This is one of the very first things that it, it does, because if you're going to be acting uh, for the collective and be planning as a state, you need to have identifiable, uh, identifiable numbers, identifiable in- individuals. And so that's why there's a, an effort the state, whether through a census or any number of other mechanisms, tries to have sorting and counting in place for people. And then, by the way, the book goes on to talk about how uh, even the most well-intentioned and brilliant schemes for state organization and management of major projects fail miserably. And here's no surprise to many of you who believe in federalism and local and state and then federal government. One of the big problems is that uh, when you don't take local variation into account for a large-scale plan, the large-scale plan is going to fail locally over and over and in countless different places, which just means the whole plan will, in a, in a way, fail. Uh, so, um, and I could t- uh, maybe another time I'll get into more detail about seeing like a state. But identification cards and I, you know, ID are a necessary part of the state's efforts to understand and uh, interact with the population, right? So uh, this... In the case of whether you need to put your gender or not, I can see people saying, "Okay, well, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. You don't need it on your driver's license at all." Uh, okay, fine. Um, but we see that at some level there is uh, law that specifically relates to male or female. Uh, there are statutes. There are uh, government programs that relate to male or female. How is the government now to treat those programs? How is the government to act? Uh, I, I really I'm, I'm curious to see how this plays out. You know, if you are someone who now is gender neutral on your ID card, would that be sufficient? Would that alone be sufficient to, uh, I, I don't know, to to enroll in a women's or a male college, a men's college, depending on what your uh, choice is there? Uh, is that alone? I know we get into the bathroom issue, right? But that that is something that has come up as a policy issue. By the way, it was forced on us by the progressive left. Nobody was talking about bathrooms until all of a sudden we were told that, you know, a 14 year old boy who thinks he's a girl is going to be using the girl's locker room in school. OK, that's and the progressives have pushed this on us. So this wasn't an issue that was the forefront of many Americans minds. But once uh, the left had run out of bigger issues to tackle, they've made this the uh, they pushed this to the forefront. This is now in the vanguard of uh, what the left is hoping for. And. Just to our north in Canada, I've talked to you about this before, gender pronoun usage is a matter of law. So you can now be sued for discrimination. And I wonder, I mean, you know, whether you can be criminally prosecuted or not sometimes comes down to, well, do you refuse to pay the fine? If they put you in jail because you refuse to pay a fine, then the answer is yes, you can face criminal prosecution for speech in that case. Uh, but that's just to our north in Canada. They think that you have to use the pronoun now as a matter of law. You have to use the pronoun chosen for you by every individual. Uh, and, I, and by the way, the pronouns change all the time or the m- methods of address 
such as as I've said in the past. Oh, but uh, did I? I told you guys, I think, right? You, you like uh, your Royal Highness Buck or something is actually a the Almighty Buck is actually a band, yeah. Because uh, I thought that would be a cool demand to make, right? Uh, everyone has to call me the Almighty Buck, but it's already a band. Somebody already came up with that. Who knew? Uh, so back to the DC gender neutral identification card. Um, this I'd like to know now if you're uh, if you're able to claim um, discrimination on either side of the equation, right? I mean, can, can you now just if you feel like you are getting a, a rough deal uh, from your employer? Are you able to, to sue under Title IX discrimination? What would that be under? Uh, how, how would that work? And I know people say, oh, Buck, the lawyers will all figure this out. But, you know, the, the further we get from objective reality, the more uh, terrified I think we should be of just handing over all of our problems to lawyers. I should probably remind you at this point in our discussion that law schools now are every bit as progressive and the faculties in law schools are activist leftists in the same way that you'll see on college campuses for undergrads. So don't think that you're not surrounded in this country by a whole lot of liberal lawyers, really statist progressive lawyers, but we use the term liberal in this country improperly. So uh, I'm wondering where this will stop. Um, I'm wondering what the federal government's plans are uh, now for people in prison who are going, I, I have to say, if you are facing a life sentence uh, to claim to be non-binary in your gender and be moved to a women's prison would seem to make a, a whole lot of sense. Uh, and I don't really know on what basis the federal government now is going to say no. They're going to tell you they have to have a psychiatrist make the determination. Oh, so we're either handing handing over the uh, the keys to, to society uh, to lawyers or psychiatrists. That's terrifying on both counts. Uh, so, sorry, lawyers and psychiatrists. You guys are great. Uh, and gals. So, such a microaggression. See, even in the midst of talking about gender neutrality, I'm mansplaining, or as I like to call it, bucksplaining. Uh, but this is going to come to more and more states now, and people are going to view this, I think, as, uh, in some cases, just fashionable. They're going to say they're gender neutral. And... I wonder where the legal ramifications of this will go. It's unclear right now, um, and I'm I'm still I'm still waiting until you have some really big legal cases that test, uh, for example, what you're able to do and what you're able to get away with now in terms of using or even abusing the law uh, based on gender identification as opposed to physical gender. Um, anyway, I, I think this will be interesting, but I'll, I'll be talking to you about this again in a little bit, but if you want to read some, if you want to know where some of this thinking comes from, just check out, uh, the origin of the family private property in the state, uh, angles. You'll, you'll see radical Marxist feminism. It's been around for a long time and the destruction of gender and viewing it as a uh, construct. Oh yeah. Nothing new. We'll be right back team. Stay with me. You know, the media wants us always to talk about how the truth is under assault by this White House and look at Trump and his latest lie. And I'm not going to tell you that Trump doesn't say things sometimes that uh, one would not strictly categorize as true. Yeah, okay, Trump says stuff sometimes that is not true. Um, Whether it's a lie or it's an embellishment uh, depends on which specific thing we're talking about. But 
part of the issue here also is that we live in a time of lies. Uh, and unlike before, we all are able to, because of the Internet, be our own little fact checkers. And so uh, lies are exposed much more quickly, and you no longer have uh, one side of the political spectrum with complete media dominance to remind you of the lies that they don't like and to just hide the lies that they do. Um, and I'm talking about everyday stuff, too. Uh, recently, and I know probably a very small percentage of you listening, I'm just guessing, are really into tennis. I happen to like tennis a lot, but uh, that doesn't really matter for our purposes. Uh, recently, John McEnroe, um, who, you know, is a tennis legend of, of sort, tennis legend, fair to say, uh, also has a bit of a temper um, and is now a sports commentator, said that uh, Serena Williams is the best female tennis player in all history, which is a very nice thing to say. He also said that she would be ranked like 700 in the world or something, which is the very bottom of the professional tennis ranking. Yeah, he actually said like 700 in the world is what he said if she had to play on the men's tennis circuit. Uh, Now, he was speaking uh, off the cuff, and it's, you know, he's just a commentator, right? It's like me. I commentate on politics. He commentates on sports. Uh, This has led to a a furor, though. I mean, people are losing their minds over this. They are completely freaked out at what John McEnroe says, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Uh, Because one, who really cares? But two, um, yeah, that's right, everyone. I I hate to be the one to, to point this out, but Serena Williams would not be able to compete at all on the men's tennis tour. Uh, This is why we have sex-segregated sports, and it's also why the stories about transgender athletes are so troubling, because as as much as the left wants to uh, destroy the well, the family, but also you know the, the the family based on a you know a husband, a wife, and children. They want to get rid of that. They also want to get rid of distinctions between the sexes, and this has its origins in I've said it, it's early Marxism. It's really Engels actually wrote about this more, uh, but you know Marx and Engels. Engels always gets left out of the discussion. Well, the truth is that the left has to keep pushing on these issues because they've already devolved into incoherence, right? So, you know, why is someone transgender? Because they feel transgender. Oh, but what about scientific cases of somebody that is not gender binary? Okay, well, then that's the only time when someone's transgender. And that's not what you're talking about 99% of the time with someone who's transgender. Oh, you're right. So we can't make it about biology. We have to make it about psychology. Well, if it's about psychology, why can't you be transracial? Oh, that's terrible. Because progressive identity politics depend on separating us all into different racial groups. I mean, you know, you just you run around and round in all these circles uh, because they can't just have a straightforward discussion or argument based on the uh, positions that they currently held a uh, hold. And men's and women's athletics is just one of them. Uh, I would be you know, I, I was a, a decent high school athlete uh, and I am by no means some great athlete. Um, played a few sports in high school road in college uh i occasionally would you know we would have uh the men's and women's basketball team and men's and women's soccer team sports that i played uh would off season uh would go out and mix it up in the intramural leagues and i would play with people from you know both the the actual teams as well as because it was a small school as well as uh, the women's teams 
And yeah, I mean, I would have been a three sport athlete and and dominant as a as a mediocre male uh, in, on women's athletic teams. That doesn't say anything about my talent or ability. It just says that th- this is the reality of sports that involve strength and speed, right? Um, tennis, actually, the women's tennis team would have would have been, they they would have beaten me for the most part because tennis is a skill game, uh, but at the higher levels the strength and speed of professional men in the sport is just going to be beyond what any female can attain as a function of biology. It's just a fact. And here we are. I mean, remember, so we're not comparing Serena Williams as a tennis player to just some guy who plays tennis. We're comparing the absolute most elite men in the world in their sport versus the greatest woman in her sport. And, it's just, it's not a close call. Um, you know, maybe she wouldn't be 700 in the world. Maybe she'd beat some of the guys and she'd be three or 400. But the point here is that there's some supposed to be some expectation of parity between men's and women's sports in terms of actual, uh, actual brute strength, force, ability, and skill. And it's just not there. It's just not there. I mean, you watch women's tennis and watch men's tennis and you, you see the difference. And this is politically incorrect. You're, you're not allowed to say this. McEnroe, who's Mr. You know, bad boy of tennis, he's having to walk this thing back and say that, you know, okay, I shouldn't have said that, I guess. I mean, the outrage against him has been, has been just madness. And you even, Serena Williams weighed in and she said, uh, dear sir, this is on Twitter, dear sir, I adore and respect you, but please keep me out of your statements that are not factually based. I've never played anyone ranked there, nor do I have time. Respect me and my privacy as I'm trying to have a baby. Good day, sir. Okay, I don't think Serena Williams needs to weigh in on this, but I think she's playing into this notion that, you know, the women's professional athletes and men's professional athletes, uh, there's really no there's really no distinction between them because the biology and XX, XY chromosome, all that, none, none of that matters. <sighs> This is the lunacy of the left now. Uh, they are so funny with throwing around the term science as though it's an argument ender for them, and yet in so many obvious ways, they reject science. Men and women are different, and overwhelmingly— Now, remember, we're not comparing just any, any man with, uh, with an elite female athlete here, but if you're comparing the very— Remember, this would be the very top of a, of a men's physical game with the very top of a female physical game— it's just not close. It's just not going to be close. What, why do we have to pretend? Why do we have to pretend? Um, and, you know, this, this is also just a, a, another version of what we're hearing in so many different, you know, so many different iterations of it these days, which is that, that there is supposed to be this uniform treatment of men and women until all of a sudden it's problematic. And, and then, well, okay, fine, we'll have sex segregated again. Um, UFC fighting is one of the best examples of this. I mean, watching someone who's a transgender athlete who's a man fight women is horrific. And yet, this has happened. And I think people finally said this cannot continue to happen or be, be allowed to happen. Um, but, I mean, this is, we're, just, we're just losing our grip on reality as a society here. Um, and our sense of, of morality and honor and fair play is, is going with it um, because of this ideology. 
that, as I tell you, is, is intersectionality, but it's really just progressivism. It's an attack on uh, the family, traditional values. It's an attack on Christianity. It's an attack on uh, natural law and basic morality. And these, I know that we're talking about tennis, and it seems like that's you know, very far down the line from it, but it all starts with the rejection of reason and the subversion of truth. And that's how you get people saying men's and women's tennis at the professional level are comparable. Um, no, I'm, I'm sorry to say that they are not. Uh, we'll be right back, team. We're talking about the uh, opioid epidemic here in a few minutes. Stay with me. One of the parts of the healthcare bill debate that I think should get more attention has to do with the reported $45 billion in money that is apparently being added to this by Senate Republicans. Of course, we won't know how this all shakes out until after the 4th of July weekend and there's a vote, but $45 billion to deal with opioid abuse, to fight the epidemic. Now, this is something we've talked about here on the show. I'm Still somewhat surprised uh, to this day that it does not get more attention in the media. And, and I would also offer to you, and not to make a cheap partisan argument, I, I hope you trust me enough, those of you who hang out with me in the Freedom Hut, to know that I try to avoid just uh, playing to the, the frothy-mouthed uh, right-wing uh, echo chamber machine, right? I, I actually try and tell you what I think is true all the time. But I do believe that the media's uh, obsession with Russia has also played a role in crowding out coverage of what is the biggest, the biggest public health crisis in this country. And I, I think you could argue certainly the biggest public health crisis since uh, the crack epidemic of the 80s. Uh, I think this is worse in many ways. And I think also you could argue that short of a pandemic disease— uh, this is about as urgent an issue for the uh, government to tackle in terms of public health as you can possibly find. Uh, the opioid epidemic has claimed in recent years upwards of 50,000 lives. This year it may claim 60,000 lives. It shows no signs whatsoever of abating, and it is affecting every state in the country. Uh, I actually found out recently that Ohio leads the country in overdose deaths, and in fact, Ohio coroners are running out of room because there are so many people who are overdosing uh, on opioids. And from 2010 to 2016, there was almost a 500% increase in people who were diagnosed with opioid abuse disorder. But keep in mind, a very small percent of those people ever get any effective treatment for it. Uh, th this is a true crisis. People often throw around that term, but when you have uh, upwards of 50,000 people killed, more people dying now from opioids than from car crashes, than from uh, any other cause that's uh, related to preventable death, uh, it's just astonishing uh, to see how this is playing out, and it's really um, also disconcerting when you look at what the options are for combating this. And I, I also think that on, on a philosophical level, it's worth uh, our time to think a bit about how we got to this point. But first, on, on the government 
response side of it, you know, now there's an effort to sue big pharma companies. And there's certainly been some foul play and some uh, pharma executives have been engaged in sketchy behavior. There are even been some who have been criminally prosecuted. Uh, in 2012, for example, uh, when you look at the numbers, in 2012, there were 793 million doses of opioids prescribed in Ohio alone. I mentioned Ohio as the leading state for opioid addiction. And uh, roughly 20%, according to the Atlantic, uh, roughly 20% of the state's population was prescribed an opioid in 2016. Uh, you, you have one in five people getting a, a prescription for some kind of an opioid. Now, I understand that there is an impulse because people tend not to like big pharma in general, and the big pharma companies are somewhat demonized in the media and are involved in uh, price gouging at times, and there's a lot of questions about uh, why is it that you know, I mean, people say, oh, Buck, you need to have profits for big pharma companies in order to do the very expensive research. I think it costs a billion dollars start to finish to bring an entirely new drug, prescription drug to market. That's the estimate that I've seen. So I understand it's very expensive. Uh, but I also understand that some drugs for that that should be uh, generic. Somehow the pharma companies managed to convince the regulatory authorities to continue their patent on it even longer, right? I mean, there's a lot of games that are played as well. And let's not pretend like the profit motive doesn't oftentimes outweigh uh, even what the pharmaceutical companies theoretically agree to in terms of uh, the public benefit of the drug versus the profit that they get, right? I mean, copyright is uh, another version of this. Uh, it's, it's always a balancing act between the benefit of the creator, the researcher, the artist, and the public benefit for it, too. And don't even get me started on how they've abused copyright so that, you know, the, the Beatles catalog is still worth a tremendous amount of money, for example. And, and, you know, people don't want anything to ever go into fair use category, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, you shouldn't have the, the sons of the sons of someone who created something still suing people for using a song. But I digress. Um, and by the way, if you look at the origins of copyright law, I'm, I'm correct. Uh, this is, it was not supposed to be ad infinitum. You get to have uh, this as a commodity almost, and you get to have ownership of intellectual property that extends forever uh, in the creative fields. Same thing's true of drugs, right? It's eventually, why do we have generics? Eventually, drugs are supposed to be uh, open to the, to, the, uh, to the market and the protections, the, co the copyright protections, not copyright protections, the intellectual property protections pass, oh, uh, pass away. Um, so anyway, that's a digression, I know. But on the issue of opioids, people are going after the pharmaceutical companies. But here's the problem. Opioids are a very effective drug for pain. And people are in a lot of pain. Um, and I think that that's one place where you won't see much of a media or government effort to understand what's going on, because we're going to the old war on drugs playbook right now, folks. We're going to the let's get uh, let's get the pharmaceutical companies and sue them like the like uh, the tobacco companies uh, before them. And now keep in mind that tobacco doesn't help anybody. Right. It's a product that people maybe want to buy, but no one's saying that tobacco treats a disease or is necessary uh, post-surgery to keep somebody from tremendous pain. Opioids do have a very real use, OxyContin and, and other drugs like it. 
Uh, but they're going to sue. They're going to crack down even more on doctors, they think, that are unethical in the prescribing of this, which is a, a gray area, my friends. You know, and I get I would get nervous about the DEA starting to go after doctors for their prescriptions of these drugs, except in the most obvious and egregious cases. But, you know, this this creates all kinds of uh, additional uh, government intrusion into the practice of medicine. Uh, you know, the guidelines the DEA acts under are, um, as I understand it, it can be interpreted sometimes as conflicting with good medicine. So, you know, that's that's a concern. Cracking down on the labs, a lot of the, uh, the illegal labs, a lot of the illegal labs uh, that we know of or that we read about are, are overseas. And so, you know, good luck. I mean, we're going to we're going to work with what the Russians, the Chinese, the who knows where these labs are. Right. We're, we're going to work with foreign companies to crack down on a drug trade that is affecting us and not really them. Uh, that that that's not a, a recipe for success. I think that. Uh, looking at root causes of this may be much more useful. Uh, in a, also, of course, having on hand antidotes for fentanyl and, uh, and increasing, preve- increasing prevention and treatment programs, I'm all in favor of that. Uh, I don't think that the government cracked down on either pharmaceutical companies or d- doctors or even those who are illegally selling or, or, or uh, creating these drugs. Because remember, they can be created. They don't have to be grown. It's not like they have to be out in the open for people. These can just be in a basement lab somewhere. Uh, and my understanding also is that unlike meth, it's unlikely that this lab is going to explode. It's, a, it's an easy process. Um, so you look at why, why do so many people need prescriptions for opioids? And, and I start to think about this from a, a holistic sense. And I am, I am not a doctor. I do not play one on radio. I have uh, very limited, my, my brothers would be laughing right now, very limited math and science training, which I, I admit to. Um, but I do read a lot, and I read um, very smart people uh, from the scientific and medical community on these issues. And what, what I see is that you have, we, we should start thinking about the opioid epidemic as, in part, a pain epidemic instead of an opioid epidemic, meaning that people are in pain. Why? And what kind of pain? Uh, are they just in physical pain? Um, and the answer, of course, is no. There are people that are also looking for escape. They're in deep emotional distress and trauma. And painkillers are uh, a, a relief from that because anyone who understands mental illness knows that there is a very direct link between state of mind and overall well-being. And that psychological, mental anguish, pain that you feel uh, emotional distress, a, a failed marriage, uh, uh, a loss of a child to illness, any number of, of uh, personal crises that have psychological effects uh, can have physical effects, and also uh, people seek escape from them, whether through alcohol or through opioids. And with opioids, it's obviously much more potent. It's much more powerful. It's quicker. It's probably even cheaper if you look at what it would take to uh, comparatively to, to get drunk versus what it costs for one of these pills. Um, so that's an aspect of it that I, I think there's a mental health component to the opioid epidemic. And we need to, as a country, look at this. And, and I don't mean to sound uh, all kind of, you know, hippie yoga guy over here. But I do think that there is a sense uh, that a, a lack of belonging 
a, a community community breakdown of something politicians say because it sounds like they care, but I really mean it. I, I, the uh, lack of attendance at church, uh, lack of, uh, hu- I think also our day-to-day lack of human-to-human contact in meaningful ways. It's all been replaced by these machines, and I, I think that that's really... Uh, I think it's unhealthy. I think that it brings about an unhealthy state of mind. Um, so on the mental, emotional side of it, I think there's a component to the opioid epidemic that gets very little attention. And I think that we need to be talking about this more. Because if people understand that, you know, the same way that culturally, look, I mean, a, a big part of my family going back for generations uh, is Irish. Uh, the same way that culturally it's just it's just always been considered a little more acceptable when you're under stress to you know reach for the bottle of scotch uh, than it is to grab a couple of oxycontin uh, I, I you know for, in order to anesthetize yourself from the stress of a day uh, I think that we need to ex- we need to be open and have a discussion about how a lot of the people and these are friends and family members I mean you look at the stories and you read the stories about the opioid epidemic and it's heartbreaking stuff. Uh, these, in, in fact, I, I don't know the cause, but a good friend of mine just had somebody lost to uh, a battle with drugs. I believe it was prescription drugs. It just, I just got the news of it over the weekend, which is why I think this is uh, on my mind. Uh, was someone, uh, the person, I didn't know the person, but someone very dear to me lost somebody who was a friend to uh, a drug overdose over the weekend. So after a long, a long battle with it, this is affecting people everywhere. This is something that... Uh, you know, we should be harnessing social media and harnessing all these digital tools to connect people with the resources and also to make them feel okay about this, to make them feel like they, they getting help is not a sign of weakness. Um, and, and then once you bring into this also the component about uh, physical, uh, physical ailments, and I know this is often the way that it happens, people go in for a surgery or they have some condition of chronic pain, and they're prescribed legitimately OxyContin or one of these different classes of opioids, and then they become uh, addicted to it, and then they go through withdrawal. And they're just in a, and their body is craving this stuff in an incredibly powerful way that affects you know the neurotransmitters in the brain. I mean, this is really potent. Uh, and then we tell them what? Oh, well, if you need more of this, you're you're weak. If you get it illegally, by the way, of course, you're you're a criminal. You could go to prison. Um, and if you go to doctors or you engage in doctor shopping, you know, you can get yourself into trouble. So uh, I also think we need to look at and the government and, and forget about the government for a second. They're not going to be able to manage this thing, really. We, the American people, need to look at why do we have so much chronic pain in this country? I think there are a number of factors. And this is just my exposition on this because I've been thinking about it because of the news that I received uh, over just the last few days. Um this is, I think, a function in part of people both living longer and also expecting more of their bodies uh, and not necessarily understanding that, you know, if you have high expectations for of output, you also need to take care of yourself. And there are some some activities that you need to transition, you know, that are that are a little too hard on, I don't know, joints or your back. Um, I, I'm also a big believer in the need for the need for physical activity as a means of dealing with pain. I know people who have had chronic back pain. They were told they have to have surgery. They, they want to fuse something together. All the, And they really, and I know some of you are going to say, Buck, come on. They really went after yoga or they really went after 
working out more and just finding something that they can do. Such a key part of working out. And you're, you know, you got a guy here talking to you now who's been on all sides of, you know, being, being too heavy. You know, I've probably dropped about 25 pounds in the last 12 months, but I mean, I've been, I've been way too heavy. I've been a little bit on the leaner side. Um, and you finding something that you will actually do uh, is such an important part of your routine. So whether it's just a brisk walk, you know, walking the dog, walking yourself, uh, just start with that, you know, a good walk, 20 minutes every day, right? These are things that can, I found have helped me and I think they can help other people, but, but chronic pain is also a, a lifestyle issue. And I know there are all these treatments out there and maybe some of them work. A lot of them don't, I don't know. It depends on the treatment, but uh, it's a it's a day to day issue as well. You know we're hunched over our computers. I've dealt with chronic neck pain because I'm always over a computer or looking at a phone, and so now I have to do things for my neck. I mean these, you know, these are discussions that need to be had, and I'm I'm not pretending to have the answers. I just have a real curiosity about this because I know people are suffering, and I know there are a lot of resources that could be. Uh, used to help them, and and there's a lot that could be done by the media to get the word out about treatment, about uh, root causes, about just having a national conversation about this. But instead, uh, you know, it's Russia, it's what a Trump tweet, it's just all this stuff that may be of of moderate interest for a few minutes, and it doesn't really help anyone or change anyone's life. So I, I'm just going to continue to spend time here with you talking about the uh, opioid epidemic. As I said to you, it just not someone I knew, but someone very close to me had uh, had a friend that was lost to it just over the weekend. So, not something that's uh, not something I'm going to ignore here. And um, uh, your thoughts are always welcome, uh, team. We're going to hit a quick break. We'll be right back. Stay with me. Hey, team. I went a little longer than I had uh, anticipated there with the uh, discussion of of the opioid epidemic. Um, I We'll be back with you, of course, tomorrow here in the Freedom Hut. So uh, excited for that. We will be hitting, you know, some lighter fare. I think it will be Freestyle Friday. So I'm really uh, looking forward to getting uh, some uh, different topics in the mix. And, of course, hearing from all of you, which is a lot of fun. So uh, if you haven't ever called into uh, Buck Sexton with America now, tomorrow would be a great day before the 4th of July weekend. We can all hang out, you know, come out to the coast, have a few laughs. So uh, do give me a, a call tomorrow, even if it's just to say, you know, hey, I just learned about the show or, uh, you know, appreciate what you're doing or, you know, I hate your dumb face and you should never do radio again. Whatever it may be, would love to hear from you. So I'm going to probably regret that last part. Uh, but uh, do call in and uh, thank you as always for your time. I, I treasure it. I appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Um, and download the podcast, by the way, iTunes. Uh, check it out there. And until tomorrow, of course... Shields high.